When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We begin today's Naughty's Nostalgia podcast recording with a tribute to my grandfather, Neil Shaw, who we lost this morning. My granddad was a huge Halifax Town fan. He was a fond admirer of Aston Villa and some of my greatest memories of the man were surrounding football from watching match of the day in his old pub that he used to run in Lincolnshire and also smashing the bottles and giving him grief from the age of three in the same pub and uh, going to see Halifax Town matches with him as well uh, most notably the conference playoff final in 2006 where unfortunately they lost 3-2 against against Hereford again the show must go on and we will go on as well but before we start I had to pay tribute to my grandfather a great man from being in the merchant navy meeting my grandma through her brother who also worked in the merchant navy too running a few pubs up and down Lincolnshire and yeah fantastic man and you're gonna be missed good morning good afternoon good evening it's Wednesday the bairn has been shipped off to nursery the pot of Yorkshire has been drunk and that means we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. Welcome to the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast and today we're in episode 37 and episode 37 means Leon in the 2000s. Are they one of the best mid-tier teams outside the big names in European football of the time? We'll decide that with thanks to our Twitter followers. Also we'll decide whether Sol Campbell was the best centre-half for England in the 2000s where we'll be Checking out his transfer to Arsenal, that much maligned transfer to Arsenal in the white half of North London. Elsewhere on the today's show, we're going to be looking at La Liga from the 2005-06 season in the table never lines. Now we're in the realm of podcast audio only in the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. Please, I implore you to follow us, subscribers on wherever you get your podcast, whichever platform, and give us a lovely five-star review. It helps bump up our viewer numbers, our listener numbers, our listenership and helps more people find content like this and allows us to do more content like this. We'll be on the podcast feed every Wednesday on the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, and please keep it here for more future podcasts in the summer. 
Now, without further ado, here's an Artist Nostalgia Podcast, episode 37. We go all the way back to the very first Premier League season, 92-93, because that is when Sol Campbell broke into the Tottenham Hotspur team. He scored, in fact, on his Premier League debut in that season against Chelsea. He'd be sort of used as a as cover for the back four in Tottenham in those days. He'd get a run out at left back in just in Edinburgh's absence the following season. But finally he would cement that centre-back role that we know him so fondly for from the summer of 1994 onwards. Crucially in that season, it would be the season of Spurs' attacking with the likes of Nick Barnby, Jurgen Klinsmann, Popescu, Anderton, etc. Sheringham and the onus really for Spurs on that time was their attacking exploits and which meant in the they had a five block in attack and a five block in the defence and with alongside Sol Campbell was the club captain Gary Mabbott so getting uh, invaluable experience alongside the experienced name there in the centre half but Sol would miss the FA Cup semi-final against Everton Spurs would lose that and Everton won the cup so had Sol been in that FA Cup semi-final maybe They'd have won an FA Cup a bit more recently than 1991, but that is a what if for another day. Maybe I'll do it on the YouTube channel where you can check out our what ifs every single day going forward in the summer. There's a little spoiler. Anyway, Sol Campbell was suffering through the mediocrity of Spurs in mid-table, whether it was Christian Gross, Ozzy Ardiles, or whether it was George Graham. They would have won. They would. Have, they won a League Cup in 1999 and. Sol Campbell was rising to become one of the best young centre-backs in world football. He would miss out on Euro 96 with the likes of Tony Adams, Stuart Pearce, Gary Neville playing uh, centre-half Gareth Southgate, of course. But in the meantime of the Euro 96 and qualification for the World Cup in 1998, Sol Campbell was amongst the first choice for England alongside Tony Adams, Martin Keogh and those types of names. He was the second youngest England captain and... Through to Euro 2004, I think, and even beyond, I think he was the first choice. He obviously had... Campbell did benefit from Rio Ferdinand's suspension, which ensured that the Man United defender would miss Euro 2004, so he would would partner Ferdinand at the 2002 World Cup. He would partner John Terry at the Euro 2004, but by the time of 2006 World Cup, it would be Ferdinand and Terry, the partnership that we would become known as in England circles anyway. But for as uh, renowned as he was on the world stage, he wouldn't be successful aside from that League Cup in 1999 with George Graham. Spurs would be mid-table. They'd get Glenn Hoddle in. Still nothing. Arsenal, however, they were stuttering following a George Graham reign themselves. They would uh, win two league titles in 89, most famously, and in 1991 along with George Graham in the in the dugout there, they'd win an FA Cup in 1993 against Sheffield Wednesday. They'd win a League Cup in 1993 again. Also with Sheffield Wednesday and they'd also win a Cup Winners' Cup in 1994. Stuart Houston got 12th place and a Cup Winners' Cup loss against Rail Zaragoza. Bruce Riot got 5th and finally, solace for Arsenal, they'd got their greatest ever manager, Arsene Wenger, as he returned to the Returned Arsenal to the podium, signing the likes of Remy Gard and Patrick Vieira before he was in place. And finally, following on from 1971, Arsenal got another double in 1998, built on the foundations of that George Graham defence. 
You've got Seaman in goal, you've got Winterburn, you've got Bald, you've got Adams, and you've got Dixon as well. By the summer of 2001, Tony Adams was nearing the end of his career. He'd retired from international football, the captaincy was given up to the likes of Alan Shearer and then David Beckham. Sol, Con- Sol Campbell's contract across the across the road there in North London it was up. He had any number of clubs he could have gone to. You could have had clubs in Inter Milan, AC Milan, Juventus. Could have gone to Spain, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Barcelona, in fact, were interested. He could have gone anywhere, really. And he moved. Well, he didn't really need to move house, but he was still in North London. And he moved, of course, to Arsenal. Arsenal, who had gone through 99, 2000, 2001. They've not won a trophy. They'd come up close against Liverpool in the FA Cup. They were obliterated in the league on two separate occasions, most famously by Manchester United in the spring of 2001, 6-1, losing the league again by a long streak after running them pretty close in 1999, taking it to the final day where Spurs, of course, did them no favours by losing at Old Trafford on the final day. Bizarrely, though, uh, Spurs have won a trophy more recently than Arsenal, and of course, by the end of the 2001-2 season, that would not be the case. Going into November the 17th clash, Arsenal had won just five in 11 opening Premier League games and were fifth place in the table. And then November the 17th was, was of course, Sol Campbell's return to White Hart Lane. Robert Perez in the 81st minute, his opening strike was equalised by Gus Poyet in stoppage time. But the story wasn't the match. I don't think many people would struggle. I think they'd struggle to tell you what actually happened in the match. The story was Sol Campbell and the treatment of Sol Campbell. 4,000 balloons were released that said Judas. A banner read John thirteen twenty seven, a verse which again references Judas. The Arsenal coach was attacked by coins and cans into the uh, in the entrance of White Hart Lane. An effigy of Sol Campbell was hung on a lamppost. And it was really the harshest and most vile treatment that we've seen for a player. David Beckham aside, I think that was a, a sort of like a, a year-long sort of away day trip for David Beckham and Man United to receive that sustained abuse. But for one player going to one ground so concentrated was the abuse. So Campbell, um, he's recounted that his brother was in the his brother was a Tottenham fan like so Campbell was and his brother was in the crowd that day in the Spurs end uh, obviously in and amongst the abuse he was receiving and he, he could manage to pick him out of the crowd and see that he was not necessarily the one giving him the abuse but in the throng of people giving him the most vile abuse that he's uh, that we've probably ever seen in terms of a Premier League game I mean there's also you could point to Luis Figo in the Classico, you can point to perhaps Emmanuel Adebayor egged it, egged it on a bit more for uh, Man City against Arsenal a few years later. But there's not many, Carlos Tevez perhaps in the Manchester derby, but there's not many places where a transfer has stoked up this, this level of emotion in Premier League football, really. The turning point in Arsenal's Premier League season came the following weekend. From the North London derby to a match against the champions, the champions Manchester United after a fourth league title in a row. Something that had never been done in English football and something that wouldn't be done because Arsenal's turning point was this game. Paul Scholes might have opened up the scoring for United at Highbury but 
that goal was overturned by Freddie Lundberg and two Thierry Henry goals that were gift-wrapped, signed, sealed and delivered by Fabian Barthez mistakes in the Manchester United net late on. 3-1 win for Arsenal. And Arsenal, they'd lose just once more in the league, the weekend before Christmas against Newcastle. And aside from four 1-1 draws where we'd, uh, we'd see Arsenal held by West Ham, Liverpool, Leeds and Southampton, Arsenal would go pretty much unblemished throughout the second half of the season. They'd uh, go to the top for the first time with a 2-1 win over Middlesbrough in December and wins over the likes of Leicester, Blackburn, Everton, Fulham, Newcastle and Derby propelled them to first. It was temporarily, despite of the winning streak for Arsenal from February the 10th to the end of the season, a win at April Fool's Day against Charlton away confirmed Arsenal's place at the top for the remainder of the season. And this season probably isn't more known for Arsenal's defensive solidity. Obviously, you count to the 97-98 season, which by this point was still the defensive record for the amount of league goals conceded. That was an iconic backline. By this time, you've got Ashley Cole coming up on the left. Lauren on the right. You've still got, Matt, you've still got Martin Keogh and Tony Adams. They would be factored out by the invincible season in the 2003-04 season, but still, Thierry Henry was in peak form, I was approaching peak form anyway, and it was built on more of a attacking onus with the likes of Lundberg on the right, Pires on the left, you'd sign Gilberto Silva through the middle to partner Patrick Vieira in one of the, I believe, more underrated Premier League central midfield partnerships, really, because you've got the Gilberto hanging back in sort of Claude Makalele terms, you've got Patrick Vieira doing a bit of everything akin to, obviously, his friend, his long-term friend Roy Keane there. The league title in 2002 for Arsenal was sealed on the final week of the season with that iconic win at Old Trafford, winning 1-0 thanks to a goal from Sylvain Wiltord, the commentary from Martin Tyler, still iconic for Arsenal fans. And in doing so, in winning that game, Arsenal not only won the league title, but they also became the first Premier League team to go undefeated away from home, obviously. Being invincible a couple of years later, they'd repeat that feat in 2004. And I think it's only been matched by Manchester City and Pep Guardiola's teams of recent times. Sol Campbell would be almost an ever-present for Arsenal, a rock in that defence. He'd be partnered by the likes of Pascal Sigan, Colo Torre, Martin Keown, of course, Philippe Senderos. And in the following two seasons, they might have lost the league title to Manchester United in 2003, but they would win the FA Cup against Southampton in 2003, retaining that, retaining that after beating... Chelsea at the Millennium Stadium in 2002, the year prior. Campbell was at, heart, at the heart of the Invincibles. He'd be less involved the season after, um, owing to injury problems in the 2004-05 season, only making the bench for the FA Cup final win against Manchester United in 2005. And then midway through the 05-06 season, Arsenal's form dipped. Campbell took an extended break after a poor first half against West Ham. They'd lost 3-2, he'd make a couple of... A couple of mistakes there owing to the defeat and Arsenal would scrabble around in the 5th, 6th, 4th positions and only secure Champions League football on the final day of the season, obviously infamously, which was spoken of on the show numerous times in the recent few weeks. Campbell wasn't in a fit state to play football, um, taking a break for his uh, mental well-being. He went to Brussels for a week for reflection and he would return to the squad for pretty much an all-or-nothing match in Villarreal in a Champions League semi-final second leg. In the Champions League era, Arsenal never got so far. They were uh, 
pretty consistent in Saul Campbell's absence in defence. They hadn't kept they hadn't they'd kept clean sheets since the second match day in the Champions League in the group stages. So they'd beaten the likes of Real Madrid, Juventus without Campbell, but kept a clean sheet. Arsenal would keep a clean sheet in Campbell's return, their 10th in a row, as it happened. And in the answer to the trivia question, who is the only Arsenal player to score in a Champions League final? The answer is, of course, Sol Campbell. Jens Lehmann would be sent off. Campbell scored from a corner headed in in Paris, but the game would turn on a substitution for Barcelona. No, not the young Lionel Messi or Andres Iniesta, but it would be Henrik Larsson providing the goals for Samuel Eto'o and Giuliano Belletti for their second European Cup. It would be Campbell's last game for Arsenal. He would leave for Portsmouth and he would win another trophy in England, the 2008 FA Cup. And he would play in their run to, in Europe and playing in that 2-2 draw against AC Milan at Fratton Park which I often reference as a, as a big landmark for the South Coast club. And he would leave in August 2009. Bizarrely then, bizarrely now, for Notts County. And we can all remember that bizarre, I think it was about six six to nine months, where you've got Sven-Goran Eriksson, technical director or manager, uh, Sol Campbell playing in defence. He'd only play one game, uh, returning to the likes of Arsenal to train, uh, embarrassed because of how shoddily it was run. Maybe we'll do a, a feature on that in the Not Is Nostalgia podcast in the not-too-distant future. But yeah, that's a story for another day. And uh, they were supposed to be playing in the Premier League within five years. Campbell signed a five-year deal as a result. The only game that he played was a 2-1 defeat to Morecambe and embarrassed him return to Arsenal midway through the 2009-10 season, playing a dozen more games for the North London club and ended his career the following season at Newcastle. Now, I asked our Twitter followers, is Saul Campbell the best English centre-half of the 2000s? And I've got the following defenders I had in a shortlist before I put this put this out to my Twitter followers. I've got Saul Campbell up there. He's up there alongside the likes of Tony Adams, which Tony Adams didn't get a, a shout-out. I think that's because he did retire a bit too early to be considered this. Perhaps in the 90s, he would definitely be up there, almost certainly captain for England in the 90s. For the majority, um, I had Sol Campbell alongside Rio Ferdinand. Rio Ferdinand got a lot of mentions. You got Harry Holland, Joseph Kiffin, Alex Rhodes, Maracas Flute, all saying Rio Ferdinand with four votes there. Sol Campbell getting a shout out from with a quirk. John Terry, Joe, even an Arsenal fan can see that John Terry is one of the greatest England centre halves of the decade. You've got George, George HS2706, a Chelsea fan, and I think that's where. This sort of Ferdinand or Terry is probably become partisan there. I probably go for Rio Ferdinand, but that's my bias creeping through as a Manchester United supporter. You've got AFC Finners as well saying John Terry. So even despite the Arsenal Chelsea, maybe it's a London thing. And I also had in my shortlist Gareth Southgate and Ledley King, who perhaps Gareth Southgate more 90s, but he was in the squads for the 2002 World Cup, the Euro- European Championships in Portugal in 2004. And Ledley King, perhaps blighted a bit by injury as well, to be included by some as one of the best centre-halves for England in the 2000s, probably in that second-tier bracket alongside Tony Adams, maybe because of the the way the careers fell. After this short break, we'll be going on to the continent and to Lyon in the 2000s, where 
we will be deciding if they were one of the best teams outside the traditional big names in Europe of the decade. Welcome back. We are in the south of France. We are in Lyon. We are in the 2000s. So the first bit of silverware in the club's history came in 1964, beating Giordano de Bordeaux 2-0 in the Coupe de France final. And a second cup came in 1967 against Sochaux and a third against Nantes in 1973. By the 80s, rolled around the eight, was still without a fourth trophy and they were bought by Jean-Michel Oulas and retained their Ligue 1 status in 1989. Raymond Dominic took them back into Europe for the first time since 1975, but he could only reach the second round of the UEFA Cup. It wouldn't be Dominic, but it would be Jean Tigana who would take Lyon that extra step. They would finish in their highest position in the 1994-95 season. That one is in second place and in the late 90s that propelled them to the likes of the UEFA Cup quarter-final under the likes of Bernard Lancome. They'd lose to Bologna in what was their best run in the UEFA Cup, that quarter-final in the late 90s, but it wasn't their best run in Europe, even to that point. That comes down to the the Cup Winners' Cup team of the 63-64 season, losing in the semi-finals against Sporting Lisbon. A third place in Ligue 1 in 1999, thanks in part to the expansion of the Champions League to 32 teams, meant Champions League for Lyon, finally at the turn of the century. But it meant Champions League qualifiers. It wasn't this it wasn't around this time where we had any of the top five teams any of the top five league teams who got into the positions. They just qualify for the group stages because we want the clubs backing and they can have all the money they want. It was a time where the biggest clubs had to qualify, whether you were Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Manchester United, you still had to qualify around this time. And a loss for Lyon against Maribor, the Slovenian team Maribor, meant they wouldn't play in the Champions League proper, at least until the 2000s, where we join this story. Lyon finished third in 99 and 2000, finishing nine points off the winners on both occasions. Then they finally re-graduated to second place in 2001 after a promising third season in the, in the Champions League. They qualified for the group stages this time, but wouldn't beat eventual finalists Valencia, losing home and away in the league. But wins at home to Olympiacos and Heerenveen and away in the Netherlands meant qualification. But qualification back then wasn't the, the straightforward round-robin knockout tie at the last 16. It was a second group stage. So going into March 2001, the last match day of the second round group stages, Leon needed a win and hoped that Bayern would beat Arsenal. Bayern did their bit of the deal beating Arsenal, but Lyon would draw in Moscow and Lyon were effectively out in the last 16, missing out by the by the barest of margins. They would meet their end in the first group stages, regressing slightly in 2001 and 2002, but success finally came back home domestically. In scenes akin to Michael Thomas of 1989, we've covered it on the show before, Lyon needed to beat first place Lons in the final match day. And on the final day, Lyon won 3-1 to claim their title, but for more on that, Check out the 24th episode of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast and the Table Never Lies feature on that episode. Now the team, it was it was notable for its legends or would-be legends. You've got Gregory Coupe in net, you've got Ed Mielsen in defence. Juninho in the middle of the park was an absolute revelation around this time. You've got Sidney Govu on the wings, Sonny Anderson up front. Leon wouldn't lead the 2002-03 league earned season until a great undistracted run late on in the day. They beat Ron Ron's 
Auxerre, Ajaxio, Nice, Le Havre, Bordeaux, Strasbourg, PSG. And finally, they claim their second league, league earned title by a lesser margin of one point. But it was through safer means as they would uh, tail off against the likes of Montpellier with a draw. They'd lose on the final day at home to Gangomp 4-1, but the league title was wrapped up with uh, some, some games to spare. The following season, though, it felt different. They, uh, they had signed Giovanni Elberin from... Uh, Elbert came from Bayern Munich. You've got Michael Essien. He was in Florent Malouda. There, he was in as well. Two uh, two players who would go to the Premier League and become legends for Chelsea. Anthony Revillier was in a centre half. You've got Mamadou Diara in midfield as well, coming into form. Both prospects from the youth system. And again, Leon wouldn't lead Ligue 1 until late on in the day in the 03-04 season with a, a good run in the spring there from February to April, and they confirmed the title again on the final day from PSG with a 3-1, 3-0 win in Lille. And it was this season where Lyon finally got into the Champions League knockout, thanks in part to a format change. Um, they got a win, they won a winner-take-all match against Celtic in the in the group stages there with an 86th-minute winner. Juninho from the spot beating Celtic 3-2. You've got Bobo Balde handling for the for the boys there. And they would Lyon would match Bayern toe-to-toe. Elber haunting these old club Bayern in a 2-1 Olympia Stadion win in the group stages. And quite possibly in this time, Lyon could have enacted a, an all-France Champions League final. They'd squeezed through Real Sociedad with a pair of 1-0 wins, but they came unstuck in the quarterfinals. And of course, we know who they came unstuck against. The fantastic Jose Mourinho Porter team who'd won the UEFA Cup the previous season against Celtic. They would win this, of course. They would lose four, They would win 4-2 on aggregate against Lyon. And with the format change, it, it left a wide open field like never before. You've got Porto, Monaco, Deportivo and semi-final novices in Chelsea. It was Leon's best run in Europe, or at least in the Champions League up until that point, but it wouldn't be their best overall. But it quite possibly, I believe, it was their best chance at winning the Champions League because if you beat Porto, you've then got Deportivo who I think had expounded all their energy in coming back against AC Milan, which we spoke of last week. And then you've got Monaco in the final. The likes of Sylvain Wiltor, Karim Benzema, Hatem Benafa, Chris and Eric Abidal came in. They would romp home to a third league earned title in an era where not too many clubs were doing that. We were slightly before the era of one-team dominance. You've got obviously Juventus. They could have won 10 in a row this season. Doesn't look like they're going to do that. Bayern Munich look well on track to win. Another Bundesliga this season. Barcelona, even though Real Madrid are chipping away with a couple of La Liga titles there and Atletico Madrid won in 2014. They're the prevailing force in Spain. But shift back a decade and teams didn't really do that, especially in France. You had um, in the 90s quite a lot of teams. I think it was like 7 in 10 were won by different teams. So it was a wide open field in Europe in 2004, but it in France, it was becoming more of a closed-up shop. Leon would uh, fly the flag for France in Europe, and I remember the first match day of the 2004-05 season of the Champions League quite vividly because he would play Michael of Manchester United and watching them in uh, Stade Gerland. And I was being, I was probably in fear of Leon for the first time there, fear of not getting a result as a Manchester United fan. And for me, they were up there as one of the best of the rest, with compounded with Manchester United being at a low point in terms of suffering under the likes of Wenger and Mourinho back home with them winning the Premier League three years on the bounce there and Man United, for the first time in my supporting of the club, were quite some distance off being successful. 
in the in the tie, Leon would lead 2-0, but ultimately drew 2-2. And despite a loss at Old Trafford with Gary Neville getting getting a goal in that one, a, a rare collector's item there, Leon would win the group, winning the other four matches against Sparta Prague and Fenerbahce. They would put Werder Bremen to the sword and how they would thrash them 3-0 in Germany. 1-7-2 back in France with a 10-2 aggregate scoreline. Still think that's um, ties for a Bayern Munich result or a Barcelona result um, somewhere down the line. There. I still think that's the uh, most goals scored in a two-legged Champions League tie. Let me know if I'm wrong on that one, but I think it's definitely up there. And Leon win a quarter-final again and against PSV and whisper it quietly, but I think they were they were favourites for this tie. Philip Koku would salvage a draw for PSV in France uh, before... PSV had to equalise again and they took it to a rare Champions League knockout stage penalty shootout. Leon PSV fighting for that fighting for that semi-final and Eric Abidal and Michael Essien missed. Leon were out. PSV would lose to Milan in the semi-finals who would in turn, of course, lose to Liverpool in Istanbul. By now, Ligue 1 was becoming a bit too easy for Leon. Uh, they won it at a canter in 2006 by 15 points. And in spite of Michael Essien leaving, really, Leon would sign the likes of Fred Thiago, Jean Carreau. And after opening the 2005-06 Champions League season, would probably their most famous Champions League result, perhaps, they would hammer Real Madrid 3-0. Juninho famously with another one of his free kicks, one of his 77 free kicks in his career. They're all on YouTube. Go, I employ to check that video out. The a fantastic video, that is. It's got two, two free kicks in the Champions League, home and away against Olympiacos. And Leon would drop just two points on the way to the last 16 again. Juninho would, of course, score another free kick against PSV. The only goal in a 1-0 win in the Netherlands, avenging that elimination at the hands of the Dutch club from the previous season with a 5-0 aggregate win. And they would play the team that ran that PSV ran close in the 2005 semi-final, and it was course Milan. Leon ran them close too. Diara equalised Pippo Inzaghi in the second leg. And they had the away goals advantage going into the second leg. But Inzaghi doubled his tally with two minutes to go. Shevchenko added a third. And for a third successive quarter final, it looked as though Leon were never going to get through this hurdle, jump over this hurdle. Whilst sauntering at home to a fifth league earn in a row, they'd fall to Roma in the last 16 in 2007. So regressing even further. They'd go down to eventual winners at the same stage in 2008 and 2009 in Manchester United and Barcelona. And in the meantime, they'd lose the likes of Diara, Carew, Maluda, Abidal, Ben Arthur, Coupe. But they would uh, have a bit of a regeneration. They'd pick up the likes of Jeremy Tulalan, Sebastian Squalache, Kim Karlstrom, Miralan Pjanic and Hugo Lloris. And finally won their fourth Coupe de France in 2008. But the following season, they lost their domination over the league earned title, losing their league crown over four spring weeks in 2009. They dropped points at home to Monaco and PSG in crucial league matches and lost away to Bordeaux and Valenciennes. And it saw them go from pole position to having to qualify for the 2009-10 Champions League season. But little did they know, despite needing to qualify in the pre-qualification, Lyon in the 2009-10 season of the Champions League it would be their most successful in Europe, in spite even of losing Karim Benzema, then the hottest young striker in the world. Having a bit of a an Indian summer in his career at the moment for Real Madrid. And of course, they would lose the club legend that was Juninho. However, that regeneration that I spoke of continued. They recouped the likes of Lissandro Lopez, Michel Bastos, Alice Isoko and Bafati Gomez, as well as Dejan Lovren. 
Bordeaux would see Ligue 1 to Marseille in 2010, Lyon finishing a point and a place higher in second that season. Meanwhile, they had, as I said, the indignity of qualifying against Anderlecht for the Champions League. Whilst Bordeaux were flying the flag for France this time, they surprised Europe by beating Bayern Munich home and away in the groups. Lyon were quietly impressing too. They won at Anfield, a, a very different Liverpool team from the likes of 2005 and 2007's final, and they would eliminate at, uh, Liverpool at the group stages. They were paired, paired with Real Madrid at the last 16, and by this point, Lyon fans were probably thinking, going into it jaded, thinking they were expected to bow out at the last 16 for a fourth year in a row. However, Jean McCoon's uh, winner in Lyon was supposed to be replied by Real Madrid in the Bernabeu, but they they wouldn't. Real Madrid had signed Benzema from Lyon, but they'd also signed Kaká and Cristiano Ronaldo, the second wave of the Galacticos. They were supposed to just be on all comers and win the win the decima that they'd been craving since 2002. Ronaldo had opened the scoring in Madrid inside six minutes. The onslaught would follow, surely, but it didn't. Miralem Pjanic got the equaliser, sending Leon through. Real at the course, at the time, of course, were, were in, a, in that huge funk to conquer La Decima. They wouldn't, of course, until 2014. And that win fed Leon to Bordeaux, an all-France tie in the quarterfinals. Leon successful in the home leg. Lissandro Lopez's double overcoming Marouane Chamac's Bordeaux 3-1 there. Chamac got Bordeaux's goal in the return leg, but ultimately... Lyon prevailed 3-2 on aggregate. They were in the semi-finals for the very, very first time in Champions League or in the European Cup. It left them with Bayern Munich in the semi-finals, with Jose Mourinho performing heroics on the other half of the draw, with Inter Milan beating, of course, Barcelona. Lyon didn't get a not too much of a disastrous loss in Munich, losing 1-0, but again, they wouldn't get an away goal. Manchester United had gone out to Bayern Munich via away goals. They lost despite a not-too-disastrous 2-1 defeat in Munich in the first leg, did get that away goal and opened up with three first-half goals in the return leg at Old Trafford, but Bayern would get three goals without reply. Ivica Olic, who helped Bayern Munich over the line in Manchester, bagged a hat-trick in France and semi-finals was unfortunately the end of the line and for Louis van Gaal's Bayern Munich, they would, of course, succumb to Jose Mourinho's Inter Milan, both teams going for the treble in that particular season. And since, it has been the end of the line for Lyon on two more occasions in the intervening 11 years. Back home, Lyon have failed to add to their seven titles in a row. They're now in a in a four-way battle for the, for the Ligue 1 title, which looks to be spearheaded by Lille and PSG at the moment, but it could all change in the coming weeks in France there. Lyon would never fall out of the top five through the reigns of Claude Puel, Remy Gard, Hubert Fournier, or Bruno Genesio, but they would finish in 7th in 2020 under Rudy Garcia. Garcia, though, he remains, thanks to, in part, to heroics that we know of in the Champions League. Leon's run back in the 2010s continued with last 16 defeats to Real Madrid in 2011, and perhaps more surprisingly to Apoel, Nicosia in 2012 on penalties. 2012 would be Leon's final appearance at the knockout stages until 2019. In the meantime, they'd appeared in... Europa League quarterfinals in 2014 and 2017 semi-final in a defeat to Ajax. They've been dumped out by a combination of Zenit and Ghent in the 2015 Champions League group stages and Juventus and Sevilla in the 2016 group stages. But they would go the 2018-19 group stage undefeated. A win at Manchester City on the match on the first match day followed five draws, uh, but they would be out in the last 16 again 
to a vastly superior Barcelona. Leon needed favours going into the last 16 knockout stage for the 2019-20 season. They needed favours from Benfica at home to Zenit to get into that knockout stage. But when they were in that knockout stage, they helped Juventus continue that streak of poor Champions League form under Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, signed to get Juventus over the line in Europe after defeats in the 2015 and 2017 finals to Classico clubs. Instead, they've faced defeat in the last 16 against Ajax, Porto and Lyon. Perhaps it was helped by the truncated one-legged format last season, at least from the quarterfinals onwards, but Lyon were able to upset Pep Guardiola's Manchester City in the quarterfinals 3-1, making their semi-finals for the second time. And suddenly it was a one-match shootout. Anyone could win. Bayern Munich, though, was an opponent far too far. And Bayern would, of course, win that match 3-0 and win the treble. But Leon did, of course, have chances. Maybe if we do a 2020s nostalgia podcast all the way in the future, we'll talk about that one and their mesmeric run to the final. My question that I asked our Twitter followers was, who is the best team outside of the traditional European giants in the 2000s? Now, alongside Leon, we had Jonathan Ahr and Maracas Flute. Maracas Flute said, uh, had it not been for their Champions League record, Leon would hands down be the best. You got Mother Quirk saying Alaves, which is kind of a left field shout, but you, looking back, you do think of the, the 2001 run to the UEFA Cup final, almost beating Liverpool, going out to an away an own goal in Dortmund there, golden goal, kind of harsh, probably one of the harshest that goes under the radar there. Sevilla, we've also got Jonathan R suggesting that, Harry Holland as well. Joe suggests Porto and Deportivo and good friend of the show, Alex Rhodes, mentions Valencia and of course we cannot forget Valencia's successive Champions League finals at the turn of millennium. And it will be Valencia and Spain where we'll be going to in the very next segment of Today's Not It's Nostalgia podcast because it's The Table Never Lies and it's the 2005-06 season of La Liga. Welcome back. The Table Never Lies and The Table is thus. 15 years ago today in Spain, Barcelona on 70 points, Real Madrid-Valencia on 59, Osasuna rounding out the Champions League places on 58, meanwhile Sevilla and Celta Vigo in the UEFA Cup spots. Deportivo on 50, Villarreal on 49, Getafe on 46 and Atletico Madrid on 44 are nearby but in mid-table we've got Zaragoza on 42, Betis on 37 and a straight shootout for the relegation spots you've got Athletic Club on 35, Espanyol Santander on 34, Mallorca on 33 and Alaves on 32 above the dotted line but below the dotted line you've got Real Sociedad on 32 points, Cadiz on on 28 and Malaga looking Quite bereft at the bottom of the table there on 23 points and looking for all the world to go down. And they would go down, only gaining a further two points. But first being the 2005-06 season and something that we've already previously touched on in this episode, we've got to start with Barcelona's double winners. The presidency of Jean Laporta had finally scaled to the heights of the previous European Cup win in 1992. Ronaldinho and Deco at this point hadn't lost... Uh, the backing of the manager. They weren't the party boys that wrecked the club in the the last stage of the 2000s. Guardiola and Messi and Xavi and Iniesta hadn't arrived fully. You've got Guardiola managing Barca B. You've got Messi coming through the academy there. And by 2005-06, he was more integral to the team. Xavi, of course, as well. And Iniesta on the fringes. He would burst through with Guardiola, of course, in that fabled midfield three, also including 
Sergio Busquets. Juan Roman would call me and Javier Saviola were out. Mark Van Bommel was in ahead of the 2005-06 season and an early loss to Atletico Madrid in the Calderon in match day three was quickly followed by Frank Rijkaard's men on a stupendous run of form, 15 wins in the league, three draws. And by the time they prepared for the reverse fixture against Atletico Madrid, Barcelona had a huge 12-point lead after 21 games. Keegan 96 vibes about this uh, about this Barcelona team. They'd lose to Atletico. They'd lose to Valencia. They'd lose to Osasuna. And Osasuna was second by match day 29, but it was a continued 12 points behind Barcelona as the, as the nearest challengers dropped like flies. Barcelona tried to make things interesting. They drew three times in a row against basement club Malaga. They drew against Real Madrid. They drew against Real Sociedad, but were still 11 points ahead. This time playing Real Madrid with six to play. They would drop, They would win three one nils, one nil their way to the league title against Villarreal, Cadiz, Celta Vigo, confirming the title. And on the, in, on the continent in Europe, they'd go undefeated through the groups, only held by Panathinaikos. So they were gathering some pace in that, in that turn of the year form where they were conquering all oncomers in Spain and would do so in England, avenging the defeat to Chelsea from the season prior by winning 2-1 in London. They beat Ronald Koeman's Benfica in the quarterfinals, Ronaldinho scoring early on in the second leg there. And Benfica were only ever an away goal away from knocking Barcelona out of the out of the Champions League. Benfica, of course, humbled Liverpool, the holders in the last 16. But Samuel Eto confirmed a 2-0 win on the 89th minute there. And the semi-final meant AC Milan at the San Siro, the previous season's finalist. Ludovic Giulio hammered in the away goal in Milan, the only goal of the tie. And in the reverse, on the other half of the draw, it was similar for Arsenal and Villarreal. Arsenal winning one there, depriving of us all of a second all-Spanish final. Arsenal hadn't conceded, as I said earlier, since match day two and were undefeated in the tournament like Barcelona. The winner would, of course, remain undefeated. And that winner would be Barcelona winning 2-1 in Paris. They became the third team since Marseille in 93 and Manchester United in 99 to go through, at least in a Champions League format, undefeated. Jens Lehmann's red card was of course important, as was the display of Henrik Larsson, as previously discussed on this episode. Larsson getting both assists in that final. And if it wasn't for, in my opinion, if it wasn't for Ronaldinho being the greatest player of all time, in this generation at least, or his half generation at least, I think this Barcelona team would be the forgotten Barcelona European champions. Only the likes of Victor Valdez, Carlos Puyol, Samuel Eto'o remain for that 2009 final win. And by that point, you've got Gerard Piquet returning in 2009 as well. You've got the midfield three established of Iniesta, Xavi, Busquets. Messi was the best player in the world going toe-to-toe with Cristiano Ronaldo in that final and every week from the following season onwards in Spain. And of course, you've got Pep Guardiola, perhaps one of the greatest managers ever, not even perhaps about he's one of the best ever managers ever in football. He was in for Frank Rijkaard. Of course, you've got the 1992 team, that was the dream team. That was Zubi Zaretta, it was Komen, it was Guardiola, it was Michael Laudrup, it was Stoichkov. Romario would come in as well later on. That that was obviously, it was the first time they'd won the European Cup then, so that was going to be special. And the Pep Guardiola times were special. The 2015 Luis Enrique season, that included Messi, Suarez, Neymar, that was special. And I think 06 does go under the radar as probably the least special Barcelona team and would be forgotten had it not been for Ronaldinho. But... 
we push on, we go to the other half of the table and the drama of the Copper Del Rey featured some teams in the lower end of the table and the drama of the cup competition got going in the quarterfinals. Zaragoza's 4-2 first leg win over Barcelona enough as they would prevail 5-4 in aggregate. Zaragoza would draw Real Madrid. Diego Melito hit four beyond them in a 6-1 win, uh, ending Real Madrid's first hunt for a trophy since the 2002-03 La Liga season. Uh, they'd score three in the first 10 minutes back at the Bernabeu and they'd win 4-0, but it was not enough, of course, losing 6-5 in aggregate. And by this point, you're starting to think, is Zaragoza's name on the trophy? They'd won in 2001 against Celta Vigo. They'd won in 2004 against Real Madrid and their opponents were Espanyol. They'd beaten Hetafe and Cadiz early on and a late winner in the semi-final. First leg from former Deportivo great Walter Pandiani for Espanyol sunk Depor. And Raul Tamudo, a name which still probably gives shivers down the spines of Barcelona fans. We'll be talking about that in a in a few weeks on the table, never lies. Scores, um, scores Espanyol's first. Espanyol won 4-1. In a case of 15th beating 11th place, Zaragoza, with the winner earning a coveted UEFA Cup spot. Yet throughout this run, Espanyol had flirted with their first ever La Liga relegation. Now, of course, they are, at the time of me talking these words, in the second tier for the very first time. But by match day 34, they were 12th, but they were by no means safe. They'd win against Betis, Espanyol up to 14th, Sociedad would get a a win at Villarreal as well, an unlikely win to climb up to 12th. Meanwhile, you've got Cadiz and Deportivo drawing 1-1 whilst other relegation candidates in the form of Mallorca, Racing Santander and Alaves were all defeated. So it had the table looking juicy for the relegation battle. You've got Real Sociedad on 38, Betis and Espanyol on 37, Bilbao on 35, Mallorca and Santander on 34, above the dotted line whilst Alaves and Cadiz we're only ever a win away from climbing out of the trouble of relegation. The following match day, you've got Mallorca and Santander winning. Santander's winning Malaga, the 3-2 win, relegating Malaga. Meanwhile, Betis and Bilbao drew, Espanyol drew with Zaragoza as well, which only served to tighten the uh, race for survival. Six points still separated. The eight teams, as I'm looking at it now, yeah, eight teams. And the following match day, Mallorca beat Valencia. Had them all but safe. They were four points. Was the buffer between Alaves on 36 points as they won. Beating Real Betis. And by this point, the gap was shrinking and shrinking from Alaves on 36 points to Bilbao on 39 and Sociedad on 39. Cadiz were all but down. They needed a four-point gap to recover uh, behind Racing Santander, who would lose 3-2 against Real Madrid, a late comeback against the Madrid team there for nothing, really. And on the penultimate match day, the contenders for relegation tumbled down from seven teams to just two points, two teams. Athletic Bilbao needed a point and got all three in a 2-1 win over Deportivo. Real Betis needed a win and got one, a 2-1 win against Mallorca. Mallorca's defeat left them on 40 points and needed results elsewhere to confirm survival. Real Sociedad needed a win, but they got a point, a 2-2 draw against Celta Vigo. But the draw, it turns out, was enough. Racing Santander needed a win for breathing room, but that alone wouldn't be enough. They were 1-0 down at home to Osasuna. Champions League fighting Osasuna, let's not forget. But goals in the final 10 from Pablo Alfaria and Antonito meant they were on 40 points. 
Espanyol had a City rivalry to come at the new Camp. They lost 2-0. Could have been in the relegation zone. But Cup finalist Real Zaragoza pumped Alaves 3-0, which left Espanyol on 38 and Alaves on 36, bum fighting for what is that valuable 17th place in La Liga. The goal difference was on t- minus 21 for Espanyol and minus 20 for Alaves. But La Liga work on head-to-head, don't they? And after two draws between the pair, Espanyol, should it come down to it, were up on away goals. 1-1 draw in Alaves was a 0-0 draw in the reverse fixture. So we've got match day 38, the final game of the season. Alaves at home to Deportivo. Espanyol at home to Real Sociedad. And both games will goalless until the 79th minute. Budipo scoring for Alaves which put the cat firmly among the pigeons. Espanyol 39, Alaves on 39. And as it stood, Alaves were about to be relegated on away goals. Coro's 89th minute goal in Barcelona confirmed Espanyol's safety and Espanyol staved off relegation, as I said, for another 15, 14 years until 2020. Alaves bounced straight back down to Segunda only to return in 2016 to La Liga and they've stayed in La Liga ever since. And it was Cadiz's first La Liga season, the 2005-06 season, since 1993. And they wouldn't return until 2020 and look to be all but safe this season. Meanwhile, Malaga returned to La Liga in 2009. They'd reach a Champions League quarterfinal, but ultimately they'd go back down too in 2018. But let's return to Espanyol, let's return to Barcelona, to the 2006-07 UEFA Cup season. Miguel Angel Lotino was out. Ernesto Valverde was in. Latina would take Real Sociedad down, but that's again a story for another day. Valverde, on the other hand, a European final was on the horizon. Valverde, a player in Espanyol's first ever European final, a striker for that that team in the 87-88 season that got to the UEFA Cup final. They'd beat Gladbach, they'd beat Milan, they'd beat Inter Milan, but bottled a 3-0 first leg lead against Bayer Leverkusen, losing 3-0 in the reverse, losing on penalties, and Valverde went to Barcelona arch-rivals Barcelona, but the dust had settled from that transfer. He'd left Athletic Club as manager after a spat with the board and returned to Barcelona, but this time to Espanyol to revive his managerial career after a year out. You have the likes of Zabaleta, Luis Garcia up front, Albert Riera out wide in a pretty young squad whilst you've got Wiley Old, uh, Raul Tamuda and Walter Pandiani also leading the line. Valverde would lose his four, first four games in charge. Shocks to Hymnastic, Zaragoza and home and away to Barcelona in the Super Cup. He would turn losses to draws and then Walter Pandiani pulled out the winner, the first winner at Athletic Club in November. Their European run got going with a 6-2 pumping of Zolta Waregem in a new 4-3-3 in the UEFA Cup group stages there. They won in Amsterdam against Ajax. Ajax, of course, with a, a fairly young team themselves, Wesley Snyder, Klaas Jan Huntelaar, Thomas Vermaelen, Jan Vertonghen. But they were complete a group stage with 100% record Espanyol, that is, with a 1-0 win over Austria-Vienna. A shock win over Spanish and European champions Barcelona kick-started Espanyol's 2007 in La Liga. Livorno were hammered back in Europe on the round of 32. Maccabi Haifa in the last 16, 4-0 after a, a 0-0 draw in the first leg in Israel. And then it was Benfica, the sternest test in the quarter-finals. Alberieri putting a man-of-the-match display. Espanyol running up a 3-0 lead. But vitally for Benfica, Nuno Gomez and Samao grabbed vital away goals and Valverde on paper had a young attacking team. Um, it was not suitable to retain that lead in Porto, but they would cling on to a 0-0 draw, winning 3-2 on aggregate to make the 
make the semi-finals. The other half of the draw saw an all-Spanish affair, Sevilla, Osasuna. Two teams that battled for that final Champions League spot the previous season. Meanwhile, Valverde's Espanyol met Werder Bremen, who we spoke of their Champions League run last week. Bremen's third place behind Barcelona and Chelsea filtered them through from the Champions League into the UEFA Cup. They've beaten Ajax, they've beaten Celta Vigo, they've beaten AZ Alkmaar. Three goals ran in in a 3-0 first leg win for Espanyol and the first the return leg was fairly twitchy thanks to an early. Hugo Almeida goal for Werder Bremen but the game was killed off in terms of Bremen's hopes of making the final with Miroslav Klose's 19th minute red card for diving and it was a 2-1 win for the Spanish club in a 5-1 win on aggregate. Valverde adapted once more and the diamond came out in the final against a stronger Sevilla side. But Luis Garcia paired with Tamudo instead of Walter Pandiani. Pandiani who scored a hat-trick against Real Madrid in the 2006-07 season's final match day. Sevilla had the iconic team that they did. Palop, Alves, Navarro, Paulson, Canute, Jesus Navas, Luis Fabiano. And winger Adriano, who scored the opener for Sevilla in Glasgow, nipping ahead of Pablo Zobaleta. A deflected goal for Albert Riera was the bit of luck that they needed at Hamden Park, the Espanyol team. The game went beyond 90 minutes. Canute nipped in front of the front post. Sevilla led again in extra time. And then with no time left, Unatus drove in a low shot to equalise. And then the game would go, obviously go beyond the 120-minute mark. To penalties in Hamden, you've got Canute scoring. Luis Garcia having his penalty saved. You've got Dragatinovic scoring as well. Espanyol getting on the board through Walter Pandiani. Danny Alves blazing wildly over and extra time here, Yanatis having his penalty saved. The late Antonio Puerta scored for Sevilla, but Mark Torrejon, the young centre-back who had performed so well for Espanyol throughout the season in Europe, thrown in at the deep end, his penalty was, was missed. But who played in the Champions League out of Sevilla and Osasuna? And if you were listening last week, neither. Osasuna had a six-point lead over Sevilla with four to play. Osasuna lost at home to Real Madrid. Sevilla won in San Sebastian. Osasuna got wins in uh, match day 36 to Atletico Madrid and Hetafe before. Osasuna's loss in Santander meant Sevilla's win in Malaga took the fight to the final match day. And as, as we've said, La Liga take head-to-head seriously. So Osasuna's 1-0 win against Sevilla in September the reverse being a similar 1-0 win for Osasuna. And Sevilla had Real Madrid on the final match day. Osasuna hosting Valencia. Sevilla needed to better Osasuna's result. Beckham getting two goals early on in Seville. But by half-time, goals from Navas, two from Saviola and Fabiano. Sevilla, the 2006 and 2007 UEFA Cup champions were ahead 4-2, would win 4-3. Meanwhile, though, Osasuna scored two early second half. Goals from Savo Milosevic and David Lopez winning 2-1 gaining the Champions League qualification spot, but of course would lose to Hamburg in the qualifiers, returning to the UEFA Cup for the for the spot that they desperately didn't want. And finally, we've got a return to the Intertoto Cup segment. Villarreal, they ran Arsenal close in the Champions League semi-final. They beat Man United, beat Rangers, beat Inter Milan. They'd lose though to Arsenal, but in their seventh place finish, secured Intertoto Cup football for the 2006-07 season. And now the Intertoto Cup was now set up regionally. You've got South Mediterranean, Central, East and North regions. And to win the Intertoto Cup in this time period, you only had to win 
a two-legged tie, and Villarreal had Maribor, a team that had scuppered Leon's hopes, as we'd spoken of before in 1999 in the Champions League. And Maribor would scupper more hopes, beating the Spanish team 3-1 on aggregate. Luminaries such as Auxerre, Caserisbor, Maribor, Afnikos Akna, Grasshoppers, Marseille, Hertha Berlin, SV Raid, Newcastle 20 and Odense all qualified for the UEFA Cup via the Intertoto Cup. And out of those names, only Newcastle United reached the knockout stage of the UEFA Cup, losing in the last 16 to AZ Alkmaar. After this short, short break, we'll round things off with a 2000s trivial teaser. We had two correct answers in the trivial teaser last week. Our answer was Eric Edmund. Edmund, who is, of course, a fullback who has played under Lars Lagerback for the national team of Sweden. Steve Bruce for Wigan. He's also played alongside Mido Melchior, Victor Moses for Wigan. Olaf Melberg and Zlatan Ibrahimovic for the national team. Well done to questionable football quizzes and Mark Berm for the correct answers there. We're staying in that back line. We're staying in the defence. Our answer this week is a centre-half. A centre-half who has played alongside Steve Bruce. Nope, a centre-half who has managed, been managed by Steve Bruce and Paul Jewell. He's played alongside Teddy Sheringham, Kasper Schmeichel, Paul Merson, Tim Sherwood and David Unsworth. Again, for you who weren't listening the first time, a centre-half who has been managed by Steve Bruce. Again, Paul Jewell. He's managed, been, he's played alongside Teddy Sheringham, Paul Merson, Kasper Schmeichel, Tim Sherwood and David Unsworth. The answer will be revealed next week. If you think you know the answer, please let me know on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube. Pull me aside in the street, shout at me the answer. It's blank, a centre-half who's played alongside the likes of Sherwood, Sherwood, Sheringham and Merson, etc, etc. Episode 38 next week will be covering the likes of Manchester City pre-money, so pre-2008. We're also going to discuss the Chelsea-Liverpool rivalry from the 2000s and we're going to the Italy and to the Serie A for the Table Never Lies, sticking it in 2005-06 season. Elsewhere, our content on YouTube will be surrounding the 1980s, the 1998 Champions League final. We're going to take a look at Arrigo Sacchi, Jadon Sancho, Leeds United, Manchester City, World Cup winning captains, Borussia Mönchengladbach and one of the best games, best football video games of all time, Red Card Soccer. That's there on YouTube, we're on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube and on all audio platforms that are relatively decent, Acast, Spotify, Apple. Give us a like, subscribe please, give us a five star review, make more people aware of this wonderful thing that we're trying to do and create football content and until then see you sports social podcast network Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. 
void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.